Our sermon text today comes from Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Join with me, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear of how Jesus attracted uh, the multitudes uh, to him to uh, receive his blessing, his healing, and also to hear his words, uh, as he called disciples to himself, Lord, I pray today that once more we would hear his call upon our lives, that we would immediately uh, follow him and uh, do the things that he calls us to do to, to be, to become his disciples and citizens of his kingdom. Grant us this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, and please be seated. Last week, in the verses just prior to our text, we saw that when John the Baptist was thrown into prison, Jesus takes that as his cue to retreat to the northern region of Galilee. And there he embarks on his mission to call the nation of Israel to repentance in preparation for the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. As we noted at the time, in response to Jesus' announcement, Matthew again quotes the Old Testament to declare that Jesus' ministry to the region of Galilee happens in accordance with prophecy. As Isaiah foretold, God was going to bring a judgment upon the land because of its sin. But in the midst of the judgment, the Lord would begin a new work in the unlikely place of Galilee of the Gentiles. As I argued last week, grace for Galilee meant judgment on Judah, just like when at the end of the, of the gospel, Jesus, commission, uh, Jesus commissions the gospel to go to the Gentiles in judgment upon Israel. Now, you may recall, I argued last week that by framing the story this way, Matthew intends we see a parallel between the ministries of John and Jesus that's reminiscent of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. 
Just as Elijah was a lone prophet in the wilderness, confronting authorities and warning of judgment to come, so likewise was John. By comparison, just as Elisha followed by gathering around himself a remnant of the faithful to create the beginnings of of a new Israel within the larger apostate Israel, so now Jesus is going to do the same. This is largely what we see happening in our text today. In the first section, which runs from verses 18 to 22, Jesus begins to call disciples to follow him to become the leaders of this new Israel. Then in the second section, which runs from verses 23 to 25, Jesus begins traveling from place to place, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing people of illnesses and maladies of every sort. In the process, he attracts vast multitudes to himself, but he does so far from the authorities in Judea to not draw too much unwanted attention too soon. So with that context in mind, what I want to do is look at a few of the details of our text, first by looking at verses 18 to 22, where Jesus calls his disciples to be leaders of the new Israel, and then afterward, verses 23 to 25, where Jesus begins to draw the citizens of the new Israel. Okay? So, first of all, verses 18 to 22. Remember that the end of the previous section situates the beginning of Jesus' ministry from his home base of Capernaum on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. There Jesus calls two sets of brothers, the first of which are Peter and Andrew, who immediately leave behind their fishing nets to follow Jesus. In the same way, Jesus then calls James and John from the Zebedee and Sons Fishing Company, They likewise leave behind not only their nets, but also their father to follow Jesus. Now on the surface, the call of the disciples doesn't seem to teach us very much. But if we compare it to other events in the Bible, when a prophet calls a disciple from his work to follow him, I think we're intended to see there is a radical nature to Jesus' call that separates it from others. To illustrate, back in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah, be, when Elijah calls Elisha to become his assist, assistant and eventual successor, Elijah is busy doing his work. He's busy plowing a field. When Elijah summons Elisha, Elisha immediately stops his work, but he asks for permission to say goodbye to his parents before he begins following Elijah. Elijah grants him permission to do so. 
Afterwards, Elisha not only kisses his parents goodbye, he slaughters the oxen he was using to plow the field, and he feeds the people with him. Then he follows Elijah. And though we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, in the same manner, when we come to Matthew chapter 8, we'll encounter a couple of other potential disciples who pledge they will follow Jesus wherever he goes, so long as they can take care of some some necessary business before doing so. In fact, one one man does something very similar to Elisha. He he simply asks to go and bury his father, and then he pledges he'll follow Jesus. Sounds like a reasonable request, right? But in response, Jesus denies the request by uttering the cryptic words, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And we'll try to figure out what Jesus meant by that when we get to that passage. But what I want us to see right now is that there is a radical call to, to, to uh, there's a radical nature to Jesus' call to follow him that separates or elevates the call to become his disciple from all the rest. I think this explains why Jesus later tells would-be disciples that before following him, they need to count the cost. And I think it explains why Matthew tells us that Peter and Andrew and James and John immediately leave what they're doing to follow Jesus. So we'll see in our study as we progress, this call to become Jesus' disciple, particularly at that junction in history, will be consistent with the radical demands Jesus makes of his followers throughout this gospel. And some later argue it's consistent with the radical demand Jesus still makes of all of us. Till then, notice Jesus calls the forest fishermen who immediately leave what they're doing to follow him. And then he tells them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I want us to think about this for a moment. We usually hear that and we think merely about evangelism, but there's a little more to it. Throughout the Old Testament, Israelites are typically depicted in agricultural settings. After all, they're a nation principally made up of farmers and shepherds. By contrast, usually it's the Gentiles who are associated with fishing. In fact, often when the prophets speak of judgment, they describe Gentiles as beasts coming up from the sea. And moreover, the idea of fishers of men in the Old Testament is often connected with judgment. Prophets Jeremiah and Amos, for example, speak of Gentile nations invading Israel to capture people with their nets to remove them from the land. In this case, though, Jesus inverts the imagery to suggest that now it's going to be the disciples who are going to capture, as we'll see, both Jews and Gentiles from the Sea of Nations to gather them into his kingdom. In fact, a little later in this gospel, in chapter 13, 
Jesus will specifically describe his kingdom as a dragnet that gathers fish of every kind that will be separated in the judgment. Okay? So that's the call of the disciples. Now, turning to verses, to our next session, found in verses 23 to 25, we learn Jesus, after calling disciples, starts to travel all over the region of Galilee and beyond. Not only does Jesus go about preaching uh, in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he also heals people of all sorts of diseases, illnesses, and conditions. The result is his fame spreads far beyond Galilee, all the way to Syria in the north, Decapolis, meaning ten cities in the east, and Judea down in the south. Okay? His spread is, is, is all around now. As we mentioned last week, sometimes we kind of just pass over geological details. But I believe Matthew gives us this information to call to mind the reign of Jesus' ancestor David. Because the description of the spread of Jesus' fame extends to the reaches of what was once David's kingdom. I think that's why we're told this information to connect Jesus with David and God's promise to him for a Messiah. In other words, Jesus' kingdom is is reminiscent of David's. It's rivaling that of David's. Okay, let me say a quick word about Jesus' ministry of healing, and then I'm going to hopefully start to tie everything together, consider what we can learn from this passage. Often when people hear of Jesus healing people of all sorts of, de- uh, of uh, all sorts of diseases and casting out demons, they think that he did this to prove his divinity. Or else they often argue Jesus healed people of every sort of evidence of the great compassion God has for people. Okay? While the latter is no doubt true, in a sense... There's no evidence Jesus' contemporaries concluded Jesus was divine because he worked miracles. After all, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha all performed miracles. And so miracles, healing people, did not prove anyone was divine, but only that the divine was working through them. In other words, most simply concluded that Jesus was a prophet sent by God, empowered by God, to announce the coming of God's kingdom. Some went a step further and rightly concluded he was, in fact, the Messiah. But that still doesn't mean they realized he was divine yet. The reason they came to the conclusion, though, that Jesus was a prophet or perhaps even the Messiah is because Old Testament prophecies foretold that when God establishes his kingdom, it will be attended by signs and wonders of various sorts, most notably those of miraculous healings. It's what we heard earlier in Isaiah 35. When God comes to deliver the nation and to forgive their sins, 
It will be a time when the blind will see, the lame will walk, etc. That's why later in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist, he starts to have uh, some doubts about Jesus' identity because he doesn't do everything the way John expects. Jesus tells him that the proof of his Messiahship is demonstrated by his miraculous healings of every sort. Okay? So there's the first reason why Jesus is doing all these things. Of course, he's compassionate, uh, uh, correct? But he's showing that he's fulfilling prophecy. Now, related to all this, Leviticus 21 sets forth qualifications for the priesthood. And in it, we learn that people who suffered from various disfigurements and ailments such as blindness, lameness, etc. were disqualified from the priesthood. Because in the Old Covenant, only those without blemish could come into the presence of a holy God. And therefore, when Jesus performs miraculous healings, it's both a sign of the coming of the kingdom, as well as a sign that Jesus is reconstituting the newly formed nation he gathers around himself as a kingdom of priests. See, he's making them fit to be part of his priesthood. So put all together, what we see in our text is the calling of four disciples who will essentially serve as the cornerstones of the new temple Jesus is building. They will serve as the beginnings of the foundation Jesus lays for his church, to which he adds sick people afflicted with various diseases and torments, not to mention those who are demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics. And these will, in the words of the Apostle Peter, in turn serve as living stones who are built into a new temple, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Okay? These are the beginnings of the new Israel. Okay. With that understanding of the text before us, let's take a few minutes to consider some ways it might apply to us. So I mentioned earlier, Jesus wasn't the, he wasn't the first wonder-working prophet to draw a community of people around himself. Initially, the children of Israel, you remember, they weren't prepared to follow Moses until after he began working miracles in their midst. It was only after the plagues and Passover that the nation was willing to follow him. In part, the same was true of Elisha. Like his mentor before, his mentor before him, Elisha performed miracles before the people, which led them to recognize the Lord was at work through him, just as he had formerly been Elijah. So for likely the same reasons, Jesus' early followers perceived the Lord was doing a new work through him. But as we mentioned earlier, again, in this case, there was something different about the call of Jesus that raised the demands upon his disciples 
to a higher level. The sense of family identity among the Jews was central to them as God's chosen people. And therefore, when Jesus calls people away from their families to immediately leave leave them and everything behind to follow him, his call has a way of subverting one of the major symbols of the Jewish worldview. And thereby show how this new, this new Israel, which is eventually be made up of Jew and Gentile, is going to supersede the old Israel. N.T. Wright explains. When Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead, you go and announce God's kingdom. In that culture, words like that would be like setting off a bomb in a public place. Even in our day, I mean, you know, ignoring a parent's funeral would be considered bad behavior to say the least, right? But in Jesus' culture, the obligation to bury one's father took precedence even over saying the Shema, the Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which was the daily obligation of every Jew. And yet, Jesus seems to be saying that following him and announcing the kingdom is even more important. It's like later on, Jesus asked the question, who are my, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he redefines his family as those who do the will of his father in heaven. He even goes a step further later when he says, I've come to set a man against his family and a woman against hers. Jesus said that's what a person has to be willing to do to inherit the age to come. And to become a citizen of his kingdom that will be redefined by those who have faith in him. I don't know how much of that Andrew and Peter and James and John understood. I seriously doubt they had the first inkling that they would end up being killed as their master would be. I'm certain James didn't have the slightest idea that within a few years he'd be killed on the orders of Herod to become one of the first Christian martyrs. As we'll see, Jesus in his mercy will have to prepare his disciples for what's to come and to reveal things to them little by little. Even then, there's no way Peter could have imagined that someday he'd also end up with the largest, most beautiful church in the world dedicated to him on the spot where, according to tradition, he was crucified on Vatican Hill. I think Peter might have a little problem with it. Uh, but nevertheless, I don't think there's no way I think Andrew could suppose that whole countries like Scotland and Greece and Russia would regard him as their patron saint. At the time, they only saw Jesus, and for some reason, that was enough. But Jesus did later promise them that his disciples, though he would call them to make great sacrifice, they would always receive more back than what we renounce by following him. 
Jesus assures us that anyone who leaves father and mother to follow him receives back houses and lands and fathers and mothers a hundredfold and in the age to come, eternal life. And this is the thing I want us to leave here today to think about. This is what I want us to learn from our text. While there is a sense of immediacy the disciples experienced at that particular point in time may not be the same for us as it was for the first disciples. But the radical demands that Jesus makes of his followers continues yet to this day. Jesus still calls people from established ways of life. He sometimes calls people from their families. He sometimes calls people from promising careers in exchange for sometimes insecurity and poverty to take up vocations that are far less sensible by the world's standards. Jesus does this because the claim and command of Jesus still overwhelms the highest of natural affections and demands. While there is a promise of increase... So often the demand requires great faith because the promise of increase isn't immediately apparent. But just as Jesus was true to the words he spoke to his first disciples, we can be assured that when he calls us to follow him and to make sacrifices for him, he remains a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And with that, I'm going to leave you with the words of Peter Lightheart for you to consider what Jesus is perhaps calling you to leave behind or do for him today. For Peter and Andrew, James and John, this is a call to ministry alongside Jesus that is unique. For these and the rest of the twelve, ministry with Jesus becomes a lifetime vocation. Not every believer is called to this kind of uh, this kind of service. But every believer is called by Jesus to reorient everything in life around him. Even if you don't leave your home, you have to live in your home as a disciple of Jesus. Even if you don't leave your nets and boats and business behind you, you are called to follow him. This is not a call to some elite shock troops of the kingdom. Every subject of Jesus' kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven, is called to restructure their time, their spending of money, their desires and hopes, their actions, their plans, their child raising, their marriages, their work, their leisure in radical ways. From the roots up, everything is to be redirected toward Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in light of what we heard today, we ask you to teach us what it means to be Jesus' disciples in our day and age. We know the sacrifice that the disciples had to make, particularly at that point in time, was greater than what you often uh, call us to make. And yet, Lord, uh, we know that we're still Jesus' disciples. He is our Lord, and that we are called to reorient everything around him. Help us to do that. If there are ways in our uh, areas in our lives where we fail to do that, to give consideration to those uh, places today that we need to make changes so that Jesus is, is considered not merely our Savior, but our Lord in every aspect of life. 
Grant us this, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's continue to worship the Lord by bringing forth his tithes and our offerings. <laughs>